Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In our region, fire is to dry forests as rain is to rainforests. Both are important in the life of a forest to provide clean water, climate stabilization, hunting and fishing, outdoor recreation, and wildlife habitat. A fire does not destroy a forest, rather it simply resets nature's clock as it has been doing for millennia. So says Chad Hansen, director and ecologist of the John Muir Project, Earth Island Institute, and co-editor of a new book, The Ecological Importance of Mixed Severity Fires, Nature's Phoenix. We're going to be talking about wildfire on the program today, fire suppression, climate change, and other topics. And we begin with smoke. Later on, we're going to be talking with Chad Hansen. And uh, we have with us in studio Michael Jenkins, Associate Professor of Wildland Resources at USU. Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. And we have us on the phone line, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Benyon with, with the Allergy Clinic at Cache Valley ENT. Uh, Dr. Benyon, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much. So at least last week, uh, it's cleared out pretty well this week, I believe, but, uh, but uh, up through last week, I had friends in Cache Valley who were uh, distributing, they're, they're displaying flu-like symptoms. They're, they're really being hit by this smoke from wildfires in, in Washington State and uh, and Idaho, really uh, indicating the, the impact this can have on us. Yeah, it was. we were pretty busy seeing people from the irritation that comes from inhaling that type of a particulate matter. The smoke can really wreak havoc in people's lungs. Now, I'm not used to thinking of smoke as a particulate matter, but I guess that's what it is. Yeah, it really is. It uh, it comes in a very in various sizes. Uh, the most damaging are about 2.5 nanometer, and that's about the range that most smoke comes in. Mm. Uh, most of the studies have been done on on smoke that comes from really from heaters in the winter. Uh, oh. People who burn either pellets or wood, but certainly anyone who was walking around last week and two weeks ago could certainly see the effects of, of wildfires. So the, uh, I suppose, so you get particulate matter then from, from your home wood burning? Yeah, you do as well. Yeah. Um, really, particulate matters come in twofold. They come in solid form, which is what smoke actually is. It's very fine, small particles. And also you can get it in a liquid form, like a mist. But uh, smoke particularly is of just the wrong size. It gets down in the little fine crevices in the lung and, and also in the upper airway. We see a lot of sinusitis, allergic-type symptoms in regards to, to that type of, uh, that size particularly of the particulate matter. So I've not been familiar with this. Obviously, this is not surprising you that people would come in with these symptoms from wildfires. Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. We expected an onslaught when we look, looked out the window those first mornings. Hmm. Um, Michael Jenkins, you've, uh, before we went in the air, you talked about uh, times when you've, you were a wildfire fighter, right? Well, back You're in a smoke the day, jumper. That, well, actually, hotshot crew. Hotshot crew, okay. But yeah, back in the day, but spent a lot of time uh, fighting the fires, and then I was, I was telling Tom earlier that I would have this persistent cough that would just linger for weeks into the winter, well after the, the fire season, I think, for these reasons that, that Dr. Benyon describes. So, Dr. Benyon, this would, I guess, for uh, Professor Jenkins, this would have been a lot of particulate in his lungs had to be cycled out. Well, that's part of the problem. What what happens with the particles, they have two problems. One is is it's kind of irritating. It's, I guess the analogy would be like having sand rubbing up against your skin. 
but it also affects things on a microscopic level. It, it really changes the way the cells functions. It causes damage uh, on an internal basis and doesn't allow the cells of the lung to, to function normally. The cells in the lung have a important function in that they have little tiny hair cells. It looks like velvet if you look at it under a microscope that beats and pushes mucus out from the lung and into the throat. And so not only is there irritation of the lining tissue and inflammation, but it actually damages the cells themselves and doesn't allow for that normal function to take place that clears mucus. So people collect mucus in their throat and then they have to cough it out. So at what point does it become uh, problematic, dangerous? You know, you all, all enjoy um, sitting around a campfire, for example. What at what point does it become a problem? It, it's usually not problematic unless you're exposed to it for an extended period. Uh, for instance, a firefighter. Uh, there's numerous studies that look at what happens long-term with firefighters who have chronic exposure. You see it in smokers. We see the damage that happens over years of exposure with emphysema. And just sitting around a campfire, unless there's some underlying problem, uh, somebody who's got emphysema, somebody who's got bad asthma, usually isn't a problem. Our lungs are well-equipped to handle that kind of an insult. But when it happens day in and day out over an extended period, that's when you really start seeing the changes. If, for instance, you look at somebody who has uh, work exposure and you look at them at day one after a weekend, there's a little bit of damage, but not much. You look at them at day four, and there's actually pretty significant damage. They go into the weekend, they have time to heal, they do a little bit better, come back on Monday, and they repeat the cycle again and again. Um, so for two weeks, it, it does cause the flu-like sim symptoms. Long-term damage is probably minimal. But if that continues to happen time and time again, that's when the inflammation builds up, the damage occurs. Uh, that's when function really can be permanently altered and, and affect somebody's life in a fairly dramatic way. So with a uh, wildfire like we had in Washington State and uh, mm -hmm. Idaho that, that blows over, obviously, this week is better. Um, what are some dangerous conditions? I guess if you have wood-burning stove and maybe you're sensitive, that you might want to look at that. Is that wood-burning stove if you're sensitive. We have troubles with the inversion in the winter. It, the inversions in the winter are a relatively significant problem. Uh, the particles are of a different nature. They're usually made uh, of a nitrate-based, um, which actually penetrates into the lung much more readily than the smoke does. Um, but as long as, as long as people are careful and as long as it's not extended exposure, the body does a great job of healing. Are there countermeasures? Can you wear a mask? I don't know. I'd see in the, in the middle of winter when it was really bad, I saw some people wearing masks. You, you have to be careful with what you what kind of mask you get. Um, there are different different filtering capabilities of the mask, and it really takes pretty fine a pretty fine filtering mask to get most of the dangerous stuff out of the air. Um, but you can do that. That's that's a very real possibility. So just just look for a mask that filters very fine. Yes, yeah, about okay. 2.5 nanometers is the particulate size that okay. is really becomes dangerous. What's what's treatment? Somebody comes into you. What uh, you know? Say this from this latest wildfire. What's what's treatment? Um, there's a couple things that really can help. Some very simple things. One of the most simple things you can do is just get a saline a saline spray and rinse out the nose and uh, clear out the nose from the particulates. 
the body has its own natural filtering system. Um, other things would include you can use a mucus thinner. Uh, you can also uh, at least do your best to cough the material out. Uh, sometimes in severe cases, we saw quite a bit of a, quite a upswing in severe asthmatic attacks. And in those instances, we actually will use anti-inflammatory steroids. Can you uh, say that what happened in Cache Valley and other areas in Utah, wildfire, the smoke comes in, can you stay inside? Does that help? Staying inside helps, especially if you have an air conditioner going and, and a filter, um, but it's not, you still are going to breathe some of it. Mm-hmm. It's not going to, there's no way you can avoid it. Mm. And there, uh, apart from the health effects, which you got to be careful of, it, some of that is just, I don't know, maybe we're hardwired to like the smell. Maybe it's <laughs> camping around the campfire kind of a thing. I, it wasn't an unpleasant an, an no. experience, at least for me. I didn't have health effects. It was, it was friends of mine who were no. suffering health well, effects. Well, Unless you're sitting directly in the line of smoke, you know, trying yeah, to well, that's escape right. those mosquitoes. But <laughs> that's right. no, in general, it's it's not a real major problem. Once again, your body's equipped to handle that. It's when it's a it's a persistent exposure that it becomes difficult because the natural mechanisms then become damaged. The natural mechanisms to protect from things like smoke become damaged, and the lung isn't able to handle that burden that it has. Mm. Oh, no, we have to uh, let you go, Dr. Benyon, to get on to treat some people. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Benyon with the Allergy Clinic at Cash Valley ENT has been with us talking about this smoke. Thank you very much. Thank you. We have with us uh, in studio Michael Jenkins, Associate Professor of Wildland Resources. Uh, state one more question on the smoke. Did you have colleagues that had long-term problems with the smoke, or were they like you? They were able to get over it in a couple of months. Well, we get over it in a couple of months, and listening to... Uh Dr. Benyon, I guess I'm glad I had a career change there rather than sticking with that for decades and decades. But, yeah, I think one other issue with smoke is the there's a visual issue as well. So when the smoke gets into national parks or into populated areas, people will complain. And it's one of the biggest things that constrains fire management and our ability to use prescribed fire is smoke. People complain about it, that it's blocking their view. Exactly. In the Northwest, you know, into Seattle, if you sock in Seattle with the prescribed fire, you're definitely going to hear about it. Or the view sheds in our own national parks in southern Utah, the greater Yellowstone. It's a big issue just with the visual mm-hmm. effects. Uh, so that seems like maybe an education issue. That <laughs> educate people that uh, well, the fire can be no, good, right? And, well, that that's definitely something that has to be done. But, you know, the wildfires are, are happening, and so therefore these are unintentionally set wildfires and no one's really responsible so we kind of live with the the consequences of the smoke and accept the benefits ecologically but if it's a prescribed fire where the forest service or park service are igniting a fire for whatever sort of benefit and there's smoke or a house is burned up then there's you know it's a career altering thing for that decision right. maker right so politics uh, enters in absolutely yeah. i i just see the 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 park ranger you know the person says i I uh, have reserved, uh, you know, time in the park, and I want my unimpeded view. Exactly. Yeah. So so don't have any wildfires around me. That's pretty yeah. much the case. Which is, I think, sometimes how we approach the our, you know, lands these days. I agree. 
Um, let's take a break. When we come back, we will uh, continue with uh, Michael Jenkins, Associate Professor of Wildland Resources at USU, and uh, Chad Hansen, who is Director and Ecologist of the John Muir Project, Earth Island Institute, and co-editor of a new book, The Ecological Importance of Mixed Severity Fires. Chad Hansen says, in our region, fire is to dry forests as rain is to rainforests. And uh, he is saying that uh, fires of, uh, of all kinds, including very severe fires, are ecologically important. We'll talk about that following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Etched Magazine, an artistic expression of life in the Southwest, celebrating the desert dwellers, adventure seekers, soul searchers, art lovers, and the culture creators who reside within the grandeur of the great Southwest. More online at etchedmagazine.com. Once disadvantaged students make it to elite schools, the hard part is over, right? They were great students. They graduated, they did good work, they got good grades, but they weren't happy here. They felt like the school was for someone else. I'm Molly Wood, and that's only half the battle. Next time on Marketplace from APM. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah Wildfires. That is our topic, and uh, we are uh, talking about a new book as well, The Ecological Importance of Mixed Severity Fires, Nature's Phoenix. The co-editors are Dominic uh, De La Sala and Chad Hansen. We have with us uh, Chad Hansen now on the line. He is uh, director and ecologist of the John Muir Project Earth Island Institute, co-editor of this book. Welcome to the program. Thank you. And we introduce you to uh, Professor Michael Jenkins, who is Associate Professor of Wildland Resources at Utah State University, who joins us in studio. Um, so uh, tell me about the book. This is 27 fire scientists. Um, you're, you're just trying to take the pulse of the fire science at this, this point. What was the goal in the book? Well, what we noticed is that uh, most of what we know about the ecology of, of forest fires especially in terms of biodiversity, plants and animals, it really has been discovered in the last 10 or 15 years. So certainly there were some pioneering studies earlier, but there's been a surge of scientific discovery in the last And, uh, and yet the, the, the public dialogue hasn't really tracked with that because the, the accumulation of knowledge has happened so fast. And so we wanted to pull that all together uh, into a really large synthesis, mostly from North America, but also, uh, also from uh, other parts of the world, Australia and Central Europe and South Africa, with other ecologists working in, on the same issues in other, those regions, and, um, and basically you know, present what the science is telling us now in terms of uh, you know, what fire means in our forests. And it's very different from what we thought in the past. It's actually quite beneficial. Including severe fires. Yeah, and that's what's inter- interesting is that um, you know, there was a, in the early 20th century, there was this notion that all fire is bad all the time, categorically. And by the mid-20th century and later 20th century, that began to shift, and there was an acceptance that, that low-severity fires, you know, where fire sort of creeps along the forest floor and, and consumes pine needles and twigs and kills some very small trees, mostly, um, that that's, that's beneficial. But anything other than that, especially where fire gets up into the crown and kills most or all the trees in those patches, those high-intensity fire patches, that that must be destructive. And I think, you know, we were thinking about, as a society, we were thinking about fire the way we think in our forest, the way we think about fire burning a house, 
Obviously, fire burns a house, the house is destroyed, and that's a tragedy. But in the forest, exactly the opposite is true. In fact, in many ways, in a forest, if it burns at high intensity in a given patch, uh, that's when life is, uh, for many species, just beginning. So tell me about the mosaic pattern. I was learning about this uh, reading the book. There's a mosaic pattern in, in fires, including severe fires? Yeah, and, and uh, there's a, another common assumption that wildland fires in our forests, uh, especially the larger ones, are almost exclusively high-intensity, um, that uh, most or all the trees are killed across the whole landscape. But it turns out that's not true at all, that most of these areas are actually burning at low and moderate intensity. You know, low intensity where uh, nearly all of the overstory trees survive, uh, moderate where you've got a mix of, uh, of surviving large trees and some mature trees that are killed, and then high intensity fire patches uh, where you get most or all the trees um, killed by fire. And uh, it turns out that's a, min- a minority of the fire effects, even in most of the very large fires. Um, but it also turns out that those patches of high intensity fire create what we call snag forest habitat. And uh, that habitat type is um, as biodiverse and abundant with wildlife as old-growth forest. Hmm. Uh, so what about fire suppression? That's, uh, it, it's ingrained in our, at least in our politics. Uh, that, uh, oh, sure. You know. Yeah, fire suppression is a, is a huge factor, and we certainly talk about that a lot in the book and uh, you know, make some suggestions about future directions. Um, and I think you know, one of the things that emerges is that... Um, because a lot of our assumptions in the past about fire, especially those patches of high-intensity fire, have ter- turned out to be incorrect, and because uh, more and more research is indicating that we actually have considerably less fire in our forests uh, of all intensities now than we had historically, um, and that many of the wildlife species have evolved to depend upon uh, those patches of high-intensity fire, either because of the snags, the standing fire kill trees, or the shrubs or other features, um, and a lot of those have become rare or, or are declining, that we really need to let more fires burn in the backcountry forests and focus our fire suppression activities you know, right around homes and communities. And that really should be our priority. Let me turn to uh, Dr. Jenkins. Um, I, your response to what uh, Dr. Hansen's been saying, then I want, to, I want to talk more about suppression. Well, I'm in complete agreement with, uh, with Chad's comments and something we've been Oh, studying or suggesting for years, and I, I do applaud he and his colleagues for uh, this book in the mixed severity type, which for us here in the Intermountain West might be characterized by the the montane belt of Douglas fir. Anyone that you know drives up Logan Canyon, for example, and turn to the right, you see this Douglas fir forest, and it's been not so much neglected, but certainly understudied from a fire point of view. A lot of the research, as Chad points out, has been with the frequent return interval low severity surface fires in the ponderosa pine type at lower elevations or in, say, the lodgepole type, the high intensity sort of Yellowstone fires. But that belt, the montane mixed severity belt, has been understudied. So this is a good addition to our to our science. Uh, do you agree with, uh, with Chad Hansen's uh, statement that we, we should let well, you know, at least in the backcountry, let let it burn and uh, concentrate suppression around uh, populated areas. I, I definitely agree with that. I, I kind of worry about the the let it burn sort of uh, label for it. Uh, the pr- the problem we have is that there's enormous public support for suppression. We can't apparently spend enough money or put enough resources to fight fires. There's very little support for the things that need to be done in advance of the ignition, all these fuels management programs that need to be 
dealt with. We have millions and millions of hectares that need some sort of treatment, and there's no money and very little support for that. And then secondly, the, the suppression effectiveness over the 20th century is often pointed to as, as one of the reasons that we now have the enormous fuels complexes that we do and the bigger and bigger fires and more acres burned is that we were so diligent and effective at suppressing fires through maybe the latter half of the 20th century. Now it's kind of getting away from us. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, my understanding is one of the you know big impetuses for fire suppression um, were some very severe fires, uh, you know, deaths, um, and and then it became let's protect lives, let's protect property, let's protect towns, and uh, I think that's where a lot of political support for. Well, yeah, the, the the age I say the agency, the Forest Service, was founded back maybe as the Bureau of Forestry in 1906, with the explicit mission of protecting the forest reserves from all these things that could damage them, but notably fire. And that agency and other associated agencies have made their, that's their their mission in their minds and in the minds of the public is to fight fire. They have all these other responsibilities that are in a time like today being set aside because the primary mission and the primary focus of our funds and our personnel is to fight these fires. So it's ingrained in the agency and that's been translated through Smokey Bear and others to mm-hmm. to the public at large. Yeah. Chad Hansen, does that message need to be modified? Does Smokey Bear need to change his message? I think so. I think, uh, you know, we, we definitely want to focus near homes. And there I think the message holds true. But uh, the message is sort of a blanket statement that we just want um, all fires to be stopped everywhere all the time, I think is is uh, really a 20th century message that needs to be modified. And I think uh, you know, one of the key points here is that what's interesting is that the science is telling us through multiple studies that even these areas that haven't burned in a long time uh, are burning when they burn, mostly at low and moderate intensity. And that's, that's one of the very interesting lessons is that you know, we actually can let these fires burn. And um, you know, I agree with Dr. Jenkins, you know, maybe the, the let it burn term um, is not the term we want to use. We might, might want to use other terms to promote that concept. But one way or another, you know, from a, a policy standpoint, I think we do want to allow more wildland fires to burn in backcountry areas because it turns out they're burning in very nice mosaic patterns um, in these, uh, you know, mixed conifer and uh, other uh, low and moderate in uh, uh, middle elevation forest types. One factor might be, and I'm not just off the top of my head, is is you know our primal fear of fire. It's it's especially when you talk about a mega fire. So, Dr. Hanson, what what's the definition there? What uh, is there an example you could you could cite us mega fire? Sure. Yeah, and um, yeah, the term itself is sort of pejorative. It's got a negative connotation. I think uh, you know we we do use it in the book because we want to uh, you know, basically. Let people know that if you if you are going to use that term, if you are going to look at fires and from that standpoint, you know, very large fires, uh, then the data are telling us, you know, basically the same thing that those are very very ecologically important events, um, and in fact, mostly again, they're burning at low and moderate intensity, and um, you know, we we the various definitions exist for mega fire, but uh, tip, you know, typically. Um, People describe it as something that's over 100,000 acres or over 125,000 acres, but, but definitions certainly vary. And I think you know, there's a certain arbitrariness to any definition you might put on that. But uh, bottom line is, is that you know, the larger, more intense fires that we've you know, thought were the most destructive fires, 
um, it turns out uh, that when the scientific studies are starting to roll in about those areas, that uh, they're actually some of the most you know, biodiverse and ecologically rich landscapes that we have. The forests are regenerating uh, wonderfully. The aspen uh, are, are seeing a, a tremendous benefit from these larger fires, as are oaks. Uh, woodpeckers and flycatchers and warblers, uh, deer and elk. Uh, so it really is a very rich landscape. Well, the Yellowstone fire, would that be considered a megafire? That's, that's something oh, I certainly, think yeah, we're familiar with. Yeah, it's a very large fire. And, um, mm-hmm. and certainly, again, it was described at the time or assumed to be very destructive and a tragedy. But it wasn't long um, until people started seeing all the wonderful forest regeneration, the wildflowers and all the birds and, and mammals uh, using those areas. And uh, you know, now people recreate in those areas specifically to see that. And so uh, you know, we have a very, very different impression of that fire now than we did you know, when it was occurring. I think part of the problem is that a lot of the coverage about these large fires happens when the fires are burning and right after they're out. And if you go into a high-intensity fire patch, uh, days or, or even weeks uh, after a fire is out, you know, it does look like a, a fairly bleak landscape. You know, you've got fire-killed trees, you know, with charred trees, and you've got this bed of ash on the ground, and people assume it's going to stay like that forever. But that's not the case. You know, by the first spring after the fire, it just becomes this incredible uh, area of rejuvenation. So this is what you're saying, and I've been quoting your, uh, your statement in, the, in an op-ed piece paper in Oregon, I think. In our region, fire is to drive forests as rain is to rainforest. Both are important for the life of the forest. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, it's essential. Um, there are many wildlife species and a number of plant species that are really found mostly in patches of high-intensity fire. So you need that mix of low, moderate, high. And uh, you need fire to cycle nutrients and increase the productivity of these areas. And, uh, you know, so it is a very important aspect of these ecosystems. Let me turn back to Michael Jenkins, Associate Professor of Wildland Research at USU. So um, if we accept what both of you gentlemen are saying, that uh, fire is good for the ecology of the forest, um, to the extent that more people move into those areas, um, then that would would counteract. Uh, It would militate for suppression. Obviously, you know, protect property and, and lives. So... Um, should we zone those people out? Um, what What's the answer there? Well, I, th- I think uh, Chad's right. We need to focus the effort around the values at risk, be they people's homes or campgrounds or or whatever, and put some of the onus on them to create um, fire-resistant buildings. So there are many guidelines out there for how this can be done. People want their house to be in the woods, but that's probably the worst thing you can do. And in order to make it you know, fire safe requires building it in a way and with materials that can allow firefighters to get to it to keep the flames off mm. off of a wood shingle roof and so on. So I think some of the onus needs to be on them. Maybe it's a matter of dealing with insurance companies that will, you know, raise rates if your house is not built to certain specifications. And then I, I do also agree that the the effort in suppression needs to be put around and in pre-suppression, the fuels programs around homes and towns. And that's what's happening this year. De facto, we have something like 74 uncontained fires burning right now in the West with 26,000 people fighting them. And it's a preparedness level five, so-called, meaning that fuels and weather and personnel are such that there just are no more resources. So the resources are being adjusted to deal with these values at risk, be they homes and towns, whatever. 
And then the second part of that is we're having wildfires that are being allowed to do their thing, and we're getting enormous ecological benefit, and no one can be really blamed because these are wildfires. So there's Mm -hmm. these millions and millions. We've had 8 million acres of fire in the U.S. this year so far, and a lot of that's burning essentially uncontained, and, and we benefit from that ecologically. So this gets back to the politics you were talking about before. By default, and because no one can be blamed, therefore we're getting the ecological benefits, shouldn't we move beyond that? Well, well, we should, but if, if we were to ignite a fire under prescription that that burned a house or got out of its prescription, then it's just a, a, too much of a risk for a manager to want to take. And then we also, like I, I mentioned earlier, that smoke becomes real problematic and people will... Uh, We'll want to know who's responsible for this smoke in my view shed. Right. Uh, Chad Hansel, what, what do you say about the politics here? Um, it seems like the default uh, resources are strained. Therefore, you know, we're protecting only populations and, and homes. Um, how do we get to implementation of your vision through normal political channels? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think ideally, uh, and this is where it, the conversation needs to go, that uh, these this shift in priority you know, needs to be purposeful, not 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 simply uh, you know a, a default because um, you know we're straining against the upper bounds of resources. Uh, and I think that um, you know one of the key things that needs to be part of this conversation, you know, and Dr. Jenkins alluded to this, is you know the way homes are are, are constructed and and defensible space within a hundred feet uh, and at most two hundred feet typically of individual homes and, and structures. And that's really where you get your bang for your buck in terms of protecting homes. And there are a lot of practical steps. We talk about this in Chapter 13 of our, of our book, um, The Ecological Importance of Mixed Severity Fires. And uh, we have a lot of steps that homeowners can take, and uh, including, obviously, fire-resistant roofing and siding, but also things a lot of people in, in a, you know, defensible space, you know, re- reducing um, shrubs and small trees and limiting up the larger trees within 100 feet of the homes, but also things a lot of people don't think about, like um, rain gutter guards. You know, preventing six inches of dry pine needles uh, and leaves you know, piling up in those rain gutters. You know, a flaming ember can, can fly in advance of the fire and land on the roof and roll down and get into that, uh, that combustible material and burn the house down. Um, exterior vents, you know, a, a relatively fine mesh can prevent embers from flying into um, interior spaces of the home. So you know, things like that can be very, very important. And if, if done properly, uh, the great majority of homes uh, do survive in wildland fires. And um, so I think that's where a lot of the conversation needs to be because, and I think there's a role for state and federal governments to help homeowners do this uh, and also inform them and provide technical assistance. But right now, a lot of folks have this idea that the problem is out there somewhere, over the ridge, out in the backcountry. And if fires are suppressed out there or, or if we do forest management that stops fires out there somehow, um, that that's going to protect us in our community. And it just doesn't work that way. I want to follow up on that. Um, you we see images and they get burned into our brain, I guess, I guess pun intended. Um, you know, towns that are threatened. And I think that, as you alluded to there, we we think that, well, if, if we did better fire suppression out there, then my town wouldn't be threatened. But you're saying that's not the case? That's right. It's, it's, it's really not. I mean, there are multiple studies that have been published on this, especially in the last few years, that indicate that uh, really... Where home protection is effective is the home itself and within a couple hundred feet of the home, um, at most a few hundred. Beyond that, um, activities have essentially, there's no, there's no real significant additive benefit 
to activities beyond that zone to protecting homes. And, um, you know, the other thing that people don't realize is that you know, most homes that burn in wildland fires do not burn in high-intensity crown fires. They burn in low-intensity fires that just creep up to the, the home and, and burn them down. Oftentimes, if homes are clustered close together, it's structure-to-structure structure burning. And so you know, we need to have a much more nuanced conversation about how homes burn in fire, fires and what we can do to protect homes. Um, and we need to kind of rein in this concept that the issue is over there, you know, over the ridge, you know, where we can't see, um, you know, see things as opposed to where people are actually living. Dr. Jenkins, you mentioned before um, preparation, uh, fuel reduction. Uh, tell me more about that. Well, it kind of goes it goes along with, with what Chad is suggesting, and, and these programs need to be uh, implemented near the values at risk, not necessarily out in the so-called backcountry or wildernesses. So it's a matter of reducing fuels, of limbing trees, of creating uh, open forests. You know, here in, in Utah, we have a lot of oak woodlands that, that grow as shrubs, and they can be properly managed and thinned to create more of a woodland, which changes the sort of fire behavior that, that you'll see. So with this defensible space around the home itself, then there's a transition of fuels management away from the home to where we try to get more of an open uh, forest or woodland and reduce the fuels on the surface. And then that kind of creates this transition from the home, its defensible space, into a modified fuelscape around the home and then into the into the wildland. I think that's ultimately, people can still have the feel of woods around their home, but they can manage it in a way that when the fire approaches the home, the fire will go from the canopy to the surface and then be of a lower intensity when it hits this defensible space around the, the structure itself. And you, I was reading an article uh, from a couple of years ago, you say uh, the future of underbrush elimination may lie in biofuel production. Well, you know, that's true. That I mean, one of the big issues we have here in the interior west is uh, what if we're going to manage fuels, what are we going to do with all this biomass that we that we uh, produce in, in managing these fuels? And, and one of the ways to do that is to, to try to create energy from it, to burn it in a way that reduces smoke and, and creates energy that we can use. And it's been demonstrated pretty well through our extension services here at USU with some, some pilot projects and demonstrations down in the pinyon juniper woodlands of, of the Great Basin how we can uh, open those up and use that biomass. Because here in the interior west, our, our logging industry essentially disappeared. If we don't have mills, we don't have loggers, we don't have roads, there's no market for timber. So in order to, to manage, say, timber forests, you have to cut trees at a loss. And it's, it's just very difficult, maybe not so difficult where Chad is in the Northwest, where they still have an active logging industry and a, a place to, to send all these logs for some, for some benefit. Let's take another break. When we come back, uh, what do you want to talk about logging? Uh, we'll talk about uh, climate change, uh, the uh, effects of climate change on wildfire. Um, and we'll talk more about the, the book. We're talking about a book, The Ecological Importance of Mixed Severity Fires, Nature's Phoenix, with uh, one of the co-editors, uh, Chad Hansen. Uh, who is director and ecologist of the John Muir Project, Earthland Institute. We also have with us in studio um, Michael Jenkins, associate professor of wildland resources at Utah State University. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Logan Film Festival, a celebration of independent films from around the world. 
Friday, September 11th through Saturday, September 12th. Films include narratives, documentaries, and animations. Ticket information available at loganfilmfest.com. Hey, what's up? I'm Shad. From their brains to their social game, dolphins are a whole lot more like us than you might think. Next time on Q, we look at the weird and wonderful, and just the truly weird, twists in human-dolphin relations. That's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. Tuesday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Have with me in studio Michael Jenkins, Associate Professor of Wildland Resources at Utah State University. And on the line, uh, the phone line, is uh, Chad Hansen. He is Director and Ecologist of the John Muir Project, Earth Island Institute, co-editor of a new book, The Ecological Importance of Mixed Severity Fires, Nature's Phoenix. And uh, one of the uh, points in the book is that forests and other plant communities need a variety of different types of fires, including severe fire, to rejuvenate over the long term. We've been talking about fire suppression and other topics. We, we began the program with smoke, and we certainly all experienced uh, smoke, at least a lot of us in Utah, from wildfires uh, fairly far distant. And uh, we'll continue the conversation here. Uh, you're welcome to join the conversation if you'd like at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, toll free. You can join us to our email, which is upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. Let me start with Chad Hansen. Um, logging, of course, has been a big part of the mix. And uh, part of the argument, I think, has been that logging is necessary uh, as a part of um, you know, reducing the fuel load. Yeah, that's a very common concept. And uh, you know, I think that there's, a, there's a definitely a role for you know, thinning small trees and uh, in reducing um, shrub vegetation you know, adjacent to homes and you know, near, adjacent to communities. And that's you know kind of the the point that, that Dr. Jenkins and I were were making earlier. I think though in in the backcountry areas away from communities, um, I, I don't really see the the need or role for that. And in fact, I I see that uh, those sorts of activities can do a lot of habitat damage for a number of, of wildlife species. The other thing that uh, is emerging from the science is that basically the common denominator where you do tend to see uh, re- a modification in fire uh, behavior and fire intensity is where an area has burned fairly recently. If it's burned in the last eight or ten years, if it burns again within that time period, um, it's going to tend to burn less intensely uh, or uh, may even halt the fire. But areas that have been thinned don't tend to uh, give you any additive um, reduction in fire behavior or, mod- or, or, or spread. Um, so basically, the studies are out there that say, well, look, you know, the area was thinned, um, and uh, it burned later, and it, it burned at lower intensity. Those are typically areas that were thinned, and then they had prescribed burning afterwards. Um, you see the same thing if you have prescribed burning alone, or if you just had a wildland fire. Hmm. Dr. Jenkins, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about climate change, and its, uh, it's, it's possible effects on wildfires, or we're going to see changes well, I think there's a couple of points there. So um, real-time fire behavior, the way these fires are burning today across the West is, uh, is a function of the interaction between the fuels, which we've been discussing, and the weather and the topography. So anytime it's hot and dry and there's extended drought, 
we will have big fires. As, as Chad has pointed out, that's the way conifer forests burn. They have, and they will. If, however, the uh, what we're seeing in terms of, of extended droughts and real-time reduction in humidity and maybe winds is typical of what we might see under the suggested climate change scenarios, then yes, I would say we're we're getting a preview of, of what our fire regime will look like going forward. Hmm. Dr. Hansen, what, what do you think? Uh, more fires, more severe fires? What, what's, what's your prediction? It's a very interesting question, and it's a very active field of research among climate modelers. You know, there are a couple of different schools of thought, and basically it's, it's not so much that the different groups of scientists are making predictions about what will be, uh, but more that they're making uh, predictions about if we assume certain things, what can we expect? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's some studies out there that say, well, if we have hotter, drier conditions, we will have more fire. That certainly seems reasonable. Um, although there are others that say, if we have hotter, drier conditions, we could actually see less fire, ultimately, because we might have less uh, of certain types of vegetation in the understory that help carry flames. Uh, there are other uh, climate modeling studies that indicate we might have warmer and wetter conditions, which would mean less fire in the future. So I think that uh, this is going to be something that's going to be an active debate for a long time. Dr. Jenkins, I believe the form in which we receive our precipitation matters here. I'm talking about snow, right? So snow has an effect on wildfires. Well, it certainly does. And, you know, some of our studies, we've, we've been looking a lot at the uh, climate change on high elevation pine forests, a, a Great Basin bristlecone pines in, in the mountains of Nevada, a very important species and a, and a very biodiverse and kind of rare system there. And, and climate change there, I mean, the trees are actually growing better since it's hotter and drier because they're living at, you know, 11, 12,000 feet where it's typically cold and snowy. So it's not so much the concern uh, there, but really what say, hotter, drier conditions might do to the vegetation that's downslope from these forests. We're seeing a lot of uh, drought-induced mortality in some of the mid-level forests from from bark beetles and, and pathogens and just sort of stand-density-related mortality that's affecting the forest lower on the slope, such that when a fire starts there, it can carry upslope and get into these high elevation forests that really haven't experienced this kind of fire in the past. And we're not really sure how well these uh, pine types are prepared to deal with that ecologically. And then the snow issue, um, we're definitely seeing a reduction in in the amount of snow. And if it's a change from snow to rain, we don't have that snowpack that often persists in our mountains into August and creates this kind of buffer to fires and, and keeps the the fuel moisture in the larger particles high during the year because the rain doesn't have the same effect. I mean, rain comes, goes, runs off, and the fuels can dry much more rapidly. So we would see a, a lengthening of the fire season both in the spring and in the fall in the absence of snow and perhaps a, a change in the intensity as the larger diameter fuels dry more quickly. Dr. Hanson, I wonder, we're talking a lot about fire in the western U.S., and that's where we live, and that's where it affects us the most. But uh, I'm wondering if we could take a broader view, maybe pick an area that's included in the the book that's not in the western U.S., talk about what we learned from fire in in that part of the world. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. So there's some interesting research emerging out of southeastern Australia, for example, in these uh, eucalypt uh, forests, 
that have a, uh, a natural mixed severity fire regime, uh, much like a lot of our forests in the western uh, United States. And um, so there's a lot of research that's happened, particularly in the last uh, three or four years. Uh, there was a, a very large uh, series of fires in 2009, and, um, and so a lot of research is emerging out of that. And I think that a lot of the, the questions that they're asking we'll, we'll have better answers to in the coming five or six years as more studies um, accumulate. But so far it's indicating that um, you really get a, a, your maximum biodiversity and species richness uh, across the landscape when you have a mosaic of, of fire effects and, uh, and a, a mosaic of um, habitat types and stand age structures that result from that, that mosaic. And, and these things really can't be mimicked by logging, for example, so by uh, intensive logging or, or past clear-cutting, you know, to the extent that that creates different age classes, that's not going to give you the same thing at all. In fact, quite the opposite. You know, one of the key things that's emerging from the research, not just in the U.S., but also Australia and, uh, and elsewhere in Europe, is that... Um, it's these legacy structures that are created by fire and that are unique to the post-fire landscape. This high density of snags, you know, these standing fire-killed trees that then become down logs uh, when they fall. Um, different um, you know, native shrubs that, that germinate um, after, after fire, many of which uh, produce flowers and berries that are great hab- uh, food for um, mammals and for, uh, for flying insects that then provide food for uh, fly-catching birds and bats. And so... A lot of the basic, well, the details differ in different ecosystems around the world. If they're fire-adapted forests um, and they have a natural fire regime, uh, we see the same broad principles uh, that uh, you want that mix. Uh, you want the low, you want the moderate. You know, there's some species that are more associated with low and moderate intensity fire, um, and uh, you don't find them at the same abundance in high-intensity patches or in unburned forest. And so you, you really want that mix in, in the landscape, um, with the full range of fire intensities and that, that range of, of age mosaics that that creates. You know, you mentioned Australia, and uh, uh, this goes to the, what we've been talking about, about perception of fire. Uh, what that triggered, just that word, triggered in me uh, the news reports we get out of uh, Australia just about every summer, uh, which is our winter, of course. Hot and dry and, and fires, and they're, you know, firefighters out there trying to protect the towns. So, so there again, it goes back to perception of fires. Can we can we live with fires? And and how do we? Well, live I with think fires? that's. Go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, no, that was it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the that's the right question right there. You can can we live with fires? And I think ab- absolutely the answer is yes. Um, but we we need to think about it in those terms and then start making adjustments so that we're protecting our homes. So we're building with fire-resistant materials. So that we're we're creating fire-adapted communities. Um, instead of, again, sort of thinking that the issue and the problem and the threat is over the ridge somewhere out of sight. And, um, and if we do that, and if we adjust our thinking and allow more of the, the backcountry fires to burn and don't have kind of a blanket suppression policy, you know, a lot of our suppression is going on these, you know, lightning fires creeping along in the middle of wilderness areas or roadless areas many miles from the nearest town. You know, we need to, we need to rein that back in. Um, but if we, if we do this effectively, I think we can really transition towards uh, fire-adapted communities. Um, I think zoning can be part of that equation as well. We need to have that conversation. Um, but I think we can be in a position where fires can burn safely and communities can also be safe. And we can see those ecological benefits and also uh, you know, not um, be spending 
uh, you know, these enormous amounts of money that seem to escalate every year and every decade on, you know, sort of backcountry forest management and fire suppression activities. Uh, Dr. Jenkins is illustrated by maxing out our resources, at least in the, the Boise Interagency Fire uh, Center. Um, I want to ask you if there's, a, again, with perception and with living with, with wildfire, you have an interesting background. You're hot shot guy, right? F- firefighter. And you study fires as a professor. Do those two sides battle, or do, do you see an integration well, in how they, we live with fire? They battled in in my mind, that, and I, I definitely uh, kind of happened. I was in a place called Promontory Point here that sticks out into the, into the Salt Lake, very far from anywhere, and we had been there several years before fighting a fire, and then we returned, and it seemed to me, as I sat there, we were fighting this same fire in the same place, and it was then in my young mind at the time that I began to question the, the value of fire suppression at all costs. So I, I think there's definitely a battle. And I've had graduate students, one who just finished, Wesley Page by name, who's uh, written some really good articles about bark beetles, fuels and fires, who was a, a devoted firefighter and uh, did his PhD here with me, recently finished, and is, you know, he's grown up and he's come to the same point in his career now. Um, you know, we just cannot continue to fight the same fire in the same place over and over. There has to be a better way. And a lot of what Chad is suggesting is, and the dialogue, the changing dialogue has to happen. Uh, we just have a couple minutes left, and I want to um, I want to go to the de- dedication of the book. This is uh, your, uh, Chad Hansen, your uh, co-editor, Dominic De La Sala. Special dedication is order, he says, to Ariella Faye De La Sala, Dr. De La Sala's 10-year-old daughter, who on hikes to Grizzly Peak, high severity burn in southwest Oregon, was especially excited to see woodpeckers, butterflies, kaleidoscope of flowering plants thriving in the snag forest. We are encouraged by the thought that if a 10-year-old can see beauty in a post-fire landscape, then maybe someday others will look twice before declaring these areas a wasteland. Um, And I wonder if it goes back to education. We need to get more people out into these post-fire areas to see the rejuvenation. I think that's exactly right. We need to get more people out into these areas, and we need to take these images of this, this wonderful, beautiful, colorful, and rich post-fire regeneration with the wildflowers and the flowering plants and the, and the oaks and the aspens and the conifer regeneration and all the wonderful things going on out there. We need to take those images to the general public more and more. And I think perceptions already are changing, and they will change more. You know, and I went through this same evolution in my thinking. You know, when I started looking at this question, or just before I started looking at this question, you know, I, I didn't think, I didn't see these areas the same way aesthetically back then, 13, 14 years ago, um, as I do now. Because in my mind, I thought, I accepted the premise, largely, that it was destroyed, or that it wasn't supposed to be that way, or there were, or there were no wildlife species that would use, use those areas. And I wasn't going into fires uh, three, four years post-fire if they hadn't been uh, post-fire logged or um, where the herbicides, you know, uh, used to remove the native shrubs and things like that. And, you know, I, I wasn't going into um, those areas um, after the fire. Instead, I was going in just immediately after the fire. And so um, my, my perceptions have changed dramatically since then because now I'm going into areas that have not been post-fire logged, um, have not had the shrubs removed, with all these massive herbicide applications that they use on national forest lands, 
and they haven't been converted to tree plantations. And if you see the natural succession that occurs there, it's very rich and very, very colorful. And as I've learned more about the biodiversity and all the wildlife species that depend upon this snag forest habitat, my aesthetic perception has changed. And now I see these areas as quite beautiful. We are out of time. We'll uh, leave it there and uh, leave you to read the book. The book is The Ecological Importance of Mixed Severity Fires, Nature's Phoenix. We've been talking with uh, co-editor of the book, Chad Hansen, who is director and ecologist of the John Muir Project, Earth Island Institute. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we've also been talking with Michael Jenkins, associate professor of wildland resources at Utah State University. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Coming up tomorrow, hope you'll join us for a discussion about urban planning and bicycling. The modern West was built by automobile, but so much driving has jeopardized the West's mystic hold on the American future. And uh, the author, Tim Sullivan, uh, took a trip around the West on bicycle. Talk about his book, Ways to the West, How Getting Out of Our Cars is Reclaiming America's Frontier. That's tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Square One Printing, 630 West, 200 North Logan. Personalized printing for home, school, or business, including banners, business cards, and letterhead. Information at squareoneprinting.com. I'm Robin Young. Robert Redford is embracing turning 80 but still pushing himself on film. How about hiking the Appalachian Trail? We didn't hike the whole Appalachian Trail, but we felt like we did because we would hike sections that were going uphill. You'd do one take, then you'd go back and do it again, then you'd do it again. After six, seven, eight takes, you're really pooped. Next time on Here and Now. Tuesday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Science at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Thank you for listening to Access Utah. The time now is 10 o'clock.